0: We've just read 1 Kings nine, ten 10 through 28. It's kind of funny how different the, uh, the preaching is in, in 1 Kings. For me, I'm not used to it. I, I'll be going and have three sermons on a few verses, and then I get to preach 18 verses all at once. Uh, <clears throat> But I was, reading, I was reading a commentary on this. It was a commentary that was a gift from a pastor up in Wisconsin, a friend of mine. It was a real sweet gift. He found out I was preaching on 1 Kings, and he said, well, do you have this? And I said, no. And he goes, here, take it. <laughs> and it's a devotional commentary, which is, which is unique and always a joy to read when uh, most commentaries today are very academic and dry and focused on the technicalities of what's being said. This guy just writes in a way that is like hearing somebody preach. It's It's just like food you get to eat. So anyway, I was reading in this commentary and One of the things that he said about this passage we've just read is that this is just Solomon doing the work of being king. This is just king work. And so if you look at it and you think, well, this has to be in there because uh, it's a warning to us. Or this has to be in here for he he says no read it and 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 just think about what a king needs to do and you'll see this is this is what a king needs to do this is what a king's supposed to be doing and then he says but the previous few verses stand like a tower overshadowing the whole passage so so what i want to do is go back and read those previous few verses that we've already read, we've already heard sermons on, but let's just back up a few verses and remind ourselves the context in which this kingly work that Solomon does, the words that come just before, <clears throat> in, uh, in chapter 9, starting in verse 6. This is the Lord speaking. And he says, But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out from the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. So this is the, this is the context in which then we read, of the, the summary of many years of solomon 's work, and we we enter into uh, a list of his political work, his economic work, his military work, and his uh, his religious work, his, his ruling as king and of course, a, a king at that time there is a very central element of his ruling that is religious. Now, today we would say, there's no way you can have a president, there's no way you can have any kind of ruler without morality being involved, right? And so in that sense, it is our, our leaders today are also leading us religiously, right? But it's different from the kingship that you have at the time of David and Solomon, where their work was central to the the worship of the people. The building of the temple is is part of what we've just gotten done studying, right? And you, you have him, you have David assigning to the Levites specific kinds of work to do. Well, today we don't have that kind of religious work being done by our rulers. But Solomon, when we get to the end there, well, let's see where what verse is that in? Um, it speaks. Why can't I see it? Uh, It speaks of his religious work in verse 25. Now, three times in a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he built to the Lord, burning incense with them on the altar which was before the Lord. So he finished the house. So his ongoing commitment to the worship of the Lord is described here at this portion of Solomon's life, it's describing him as a faithful leader, even in aspects that are religious, leading the people into the the work of the sacrificial system and the feasts, okay? So, he's not not, uh, being a priest, right? But he is he is making sure that the, that the priestly work is done and that the worship is done according to the commands of God who gave commands for these sorts of feasts to happen. By the, when, when completing the temple, he's completing the requirements that were part of God's plan. If you go back to Exodus and he says, you know, you're going to celebrate this every year. You're going to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, right? These are the things that Solomon is making sure don't get left behind, that people don't begin to forget them, that they don't avoid this religious element of everyday life. Day in, day out, the work that Solomon is doing is fully orbed he's doing all of the kingly work so let's talk a little bit more about that politics kids do you know what politics means yeah Liam's got an answer wow go ahead Government and voting and stuff, yeah, that's, we, we typically think of that stuff as all being re- related, it's political, right? It's all political. But here's the thing, uh, all of you guys are in, who are in school, okay, uh, there are politics in your classroom. There's, you don't have to have voting for there to be politics in the classroom. Politics is a little bit broader than just questions of votes and stuff, okay? Now, why do I say there are politics in the classroom? Well, I remember when I was in uh, third and fourth grade, okay? So there's not a lot that I remember from when I was that young, but one of the things that I remember is that this little country school that I went to, uh, with one class, one small class per grade, only K through, or maybe not even K, maybe just first through fourth grade, all right? There were politics in the classroom. There, there were arguments and fights about who was more popular and who was better at what kinds of things on the playground or in the classroom, in different subjects. There were competitions, and there was, there was political machinations, and they took on different forms between the boys and the girls. And this is what made it stand out to me, because I remember that if I got mad at my best friend who was in class with me, I'd just punch him. Don't recommend this. But that was politics. But the girls, oh boy, very different. They would go into these little enclaves and talk, 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 talk. Talk, 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 talk. And best friends, Heather and Kristen. Were they cousins? They were cousins even. Best friends and cousins, Heather and Kristen. They'd go for two weeks without talking to each other because they were having a tiff, a spat, an argument, a fight. About what? Who knows? Why was I punching my best friend? Who knows? Now, a lot of the time, those things are about politics. Not always. It's not politics if you're playing basketball and somebody trips you and you get mad and you punch them. Not really. Politics is is a little bit different. I'm trying to help you kids understand. So so here's here's the best example I can give. Politics in this passage is when Solomon gets all this help from another king. Do you guys remember what what other king was helping him? Yeah. Hiram, that's right. He gets all this help from this other king. And w- what kind of help did Hiram give? Judah, yeah. Yep, wood and gold and workers too to, to bring those things, to, to harvest and, and, and provide all of that stuff, right? So he provided a lot of help and King Solomon decided to reward him by giving him 20 cities. Is that the number? See, these are the kinds of things. Yeah, 20, All right? Got it. And Hiram didn't like them. That's politics, folks. <laughs> Trying to keep everybody happy, that's politics. Hiram didn't like him, so he so they were called the Land of Kabul to this day. Now, nobody's really sure exactly if that name comes from uh some sort of pun. It seems like maybe Hiram was using a pun to to call them, to call it like nothing land or, uh, you know, worthless zone or something like that, right? That that's, he's like, oh, thanks for giving me the worthless zone. Hiram was not impressed. But, you know, what are you going to do when the guy that you're not impressed with is Solomon? Solomon who rules over the combined kingdom, has wealth beyond measure, is building fortress cities at all of the trade routes, and that's part of what we read in here, okay, so we're, we're, we're crossing over into the economics. But I mean, Solomon, who is blessed of the Lord beyond measure, Solomon, who has wisdom beyond bounds, Hiram, Hiram is not an idiot king. He also can do politics. And he decides, well, you know, that that payment really kind of wasn't what I wanted. But it's still better to be friends with Solomon than enemies. <laughs> and so he goes in to more work with Solomon, they make an economic party that they're going to work together. And they begin to build ships and send them out and go and collect gold. Now, we've got these measures of gold that Hiram had provided in the process of the building of the temple. And we've also got then the amount of gold that they brought back with their joint economic convention, right? It's kind of like the Eurozone going on there, bringing two countries to work together economically. And uh, and the measures of gold, 120 talents of gold um, that that Hiram had sent. And then the building of... Ships and and uh, at the end, 420 talents in verse 28 of gold brought back from Ophir. Well, you guys know about Fort Knox, right? Have you kids heard, learned about Fort Knox? No. Yes. <laughs> Fort Knox is where the US keeps most of its gold, right? Did I, did I get the name wrong? I'm getting some questioning looks from adults. Maybe nobody knows about this. Do I have the name wrong? Oh, allegedly, yeah, that's the question. <laughs> Fort Knox is where the, where the US allegedly keeps most of its gold. Good, good qualification there, because I've never seen it. <laughs> Gold is really really heavy. Did you kids know that? It's really heavy. So the best way to help you understand how much gold we're talking about is that you can measure it in tons. You're not measuring this by pounds. Okay? You're measuring this by by tons of gold. This is a crazy amount of gold. That's part of why when Solomon was ruling in Jerusalem, gold was so plentiful that silver was considered useless. Who wants silver when there's so much gold everywhere? You got to have tons of gold for that to be the case in a big city, right? So part of what we're seeing here is the evidence of God's blessing continuing on Solomon after he does the work of building the temple. And I want us all to recognize that. What we're seeing here is the description of Solomon being the king, doing the kingly work, and God blessing that work. It's not some, it's, it's if, if you look at the, if you look at the political side, Hiram was unhappy, but did Solomon fail politically? Nope. Hiram's still on his side. Right? And that's what politics is. It's trying to get people on your side. If you kids really want a simple definition, it's trying to get people on your side. So anytime there are sides in an argument, sides in the basketball game. You guys know that you know, you have picked, there's two captains and they're each going to pick teams. And who they pick first and who they pick last, that's, that's, there's politics that goes into that. So anytime there are sides and you're trying to get people to agree with you and be on your side in something, you're you're dealing with politics. Now, Solomon wins at politics. Solomon wins economically. Right? Solomon does good work religiously. He makes sure that 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 the ongoing work of worship Is happening in Jerusalem. And by the way, this is right after the temple was built and and right after the Lord spoke to him and gave him this promise. Yes, there's that threat that comes at the end that we read, but the first part of God's word to him is, if you obey me, you will be blessed. And so what we're seeing laid out here is the blessing of the Lord being poured out on Solomon as he is faithful to do the work that he's supposed to do as a king. Now, so far I've only talked about the gold with the economics, but you see Solomon levying forced labor, right, to build not just the house of the Lord, not just his own house, also the Millo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer, And some of these cities, like I was saying a minute ago, they fall on caravan routes And so, when he adds in shipping, economically, his influence is way beyond the bounds of just the borders of their country. Now, this is, again, something that the U.S. is familiar with. We are on, maybe for not much longer, but, you know, a dollar-denominated world. Our economic influence goes far beyond the borders of our land. So does our military power. And this is the case also with putting in these cities. By having having these cities placed strategically, he protects the land, as these are entry points into and out of uh, important areas of the country, and also give access to project power beyond the borders of your country into the rest of the surrounding region. Are you guys tracking with me? This is the building. These are the additional building projects that are being described here. We're seeing real success on the part of Solomon building these cities, these fortresses, and being able to use them uh, militarily and economically. Economically because you can tax everything that goes through your land the moment that you have that kind of military power over the trade routes. So this is, I mean, just like in the United States and the world today, the military and the economic projection go together right the power that is there they go together so we're seeing we're seeing solomon succeed in his work also storage cities why do you need storage cities Kids, what do you think? Why, do you, why, would Solomon, why would it be important for Solomon to build storage cities? Yeah, wait. You get that much gold and jewels and stuff, you need to put it somewhere. Absolutely. That's part of it. It's just, it just becomes a practical necessity, right? But there's other practical necessities that storage cities, maybe, maybe the parents need to answer this one. Why else do we need storage cities? Anybody want to answer? Oh, you're going to answer, Abel? Because he wants to go? No, it's because he wants to stay. Sorry. It's a good, good guess. You need storage cities for food. Storage cities are helpful to level out the ups and the downs, the swings that come in Times of plenty and times of hardship. Why do we have strategic reserves of petroleum? It's to to protect ourselves, right? We have storage cities for oil. Did you kids know that? We don't really call them storage cities, but we've got something called strategic strategy. You know, it's like planning. Reserves, we we store a bunch of it, and we don't just do it with oil. We do it with all kinds of food, too. Solomon does this. Now, if I'm not careful, I'm going to start making people uncomfortable because you're going to be thinking, wait a minute, I don't like some of these things that we do that Solomon also does that you say it's Solomon winning. (laughs) Well, it is Solomon winning, isn't it? One of the things I want us to take away from this is remembering that uh, this is the blessing of the Lord on Solomon. We don't see some big warning against these things. In fact, the only thing that uh, that one commentator could really point out as potentially problematic, he said he didn't think it was really kosher, which really cracked me up, was giving away part of God's promised land to another king. Right? That might not be kosher, he says. Didn't really occur to me, which is why I thought it was, oh yeah, that's a good point. We're not, we're not supposed to be giving away the Lord's land that he's given to us. Nevertheless, Solomon is doing good political work, economically, and militarily. He is absolutely fulfilling the the greatest uh, desires of any nation, right? And his ruling is filled with the wisdom that. God had promised to give him. Now, where do we see ruling in this? We see ruling as, he, as, as we read of the, the workers, right? And what he had various people doing. Those people who were the enemies who had been overpowered but not totally eliminated in the land that were left, those were the people that he made slaves to do this work. But he did not take the people of God and enslave them. This is important. This is is yet another indication of him being wise and ruling with, with godliness among the people. Right? And you say, oh, but slavery. He was obviously being wicked. Well... We could spend a lot of time talking about that, but you got to remember, these were the enemies of the people of God whom God had given over into their hands and said to destroy them. The choice was death or slavery by God's command. And so we don't question that. We simply say, God's will be done. And the far bigger problem, if you really want to argue with God, is the death part. The Amalekites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, right? These are the people who lived in the land and whose wickedness had reached up to the sky and become a stench that God said could not stand anymore. And so Solomon levied forced laborers from them. But Solomon, verse 22, did not make slaves of the sons of Israel. This is important too, isn't it? You don't make slaves of the people who are your people. The owners of the land. God's chosen people. Nevertheless, I want you to see, they were men of war. They were his servants. They were his princes, his captains, his chariot commanders, his horsemen. They were chief officers over the slave labor. When you say they were not slaves, today we've, we've come to the point where we call a lot of things Slavery. And I think an awful lot of these jobs we would call slavery today. Oh, I'm just a wage slave, you know. No, that's called working for money. That's good. You don't need to be ashamed of that. Well, I don't get paid as much as I want. Now, that's called greed. <laughs> right? Right? Well, maybe, maybe not. It's okay to want a better job. It's okay to go try to get a better job. But we shouldn't shouldn't denigrate the work that we've been called to do if it's the big work that Solomon was called to or if it's the small work that you're called to of being a cook in the king's kitchen those are the servants, you know. There's awful lot of servants that weren't slaves, but they were servants. It might be tempting for us to look at what Solomon does here and think that he's being distracted by things that he shouldn't care about. But part of what I'm trying to get you to see is all of these things are things that Solomon should care about. This is what he needs to be doing. It's not somehow wrong because he's doing, quote-unquote, secular work. And the reason I want to, to bring this point out is so that all of you see your jobs, whether they're large or small, I want you to see that secular work that you are called to is good, pleasing to God, wonderful work. It's part of how he blesses us, that he gives us the day-in, day-out work of going, weeding, getting paid, going home. Going, mowing, getting paid, going home. It doesn't sound very religious, doesn't sound very spiritual, doesn't sound very holy, right? But it is. It's the work that God has called us, that man is to work before he eats. Now, are there ways of taking that and twisting it into something wrong? That command that man must work? Yes, of course. There are, there are a million ways of twisting that into making it wrong. As a fact, matter of fact, I just found out last week that that was the basis behind the gulag archipelago, that, that command that a man must work before he eats. So that, that, slave, la- that, that uh, slave labor, uh, yeah, what do they call it? Forced labor in the prison camps. The whole basis of that was, was built on that command. It got totally twisted though, right? And there are many ways for us to take God's commands and twist them into something that is wrong and inappropriate, or to, to use them to oppress others in ways that are wicked and wrong. We're warned many places, though, not to take advantage of those who are weak, like the day laborer. Don't take his cloak in pledge, right? Well, how do I know if I'll get my money back if I don't do that? Well, you don't. You don't know. Pay him before he goes home. Well, he's too stupid. He'll spend it all on drink. We'll pay him before he goes home, anyway. You're not really worried about him. You're just liking having control. These are the kinds of things that we're warned about and told not to not to be abusive, right? So Solomon Solomon is not turning the people into. Uh, Slaves. But he has an awful lot of control over everything, doesn't he? He has an awful lot of control over all the people. All of this is in the context of having just finished the temple. All the rest of the building that he does, the way that the Bible talks about Solomon building, it uh, it's, it could be translated that he liked building, or that he had a passion for building, even. And you begin to see it when you realize how many cities he built, not just. This beautiful temple and then a beautiful palace, right? Uh, But whole cities that he's building. Storage cities, military cities, trade route cities. These things, if you go back and you look, uh, the, the walls on some of these places are monstrous. Monstrous walls. These are amazing building projects that Solomon took on. Why? Was it so that Solomon could have a grand name? It's really not. It's because he knew that having strategic reserves was wise for the sake of the people. It's because he knew that having military power that that projected beyond the borders and and that protected the borders, right, was wise and good for the welfare of the people. It's because he knew that bringing in money and gold was of benefit, not just to himself, but to the rest of the people. Some of this could could even be looked at as jobs projects. Building the infrastructure necessary for the country to prosper. Even though it's at the cost, yes, of some slave labor, but not of the people, right? But you remember that he was drawing some, some of those servants and that some of those Uh, workers that were needed for the temple from among the people of God, sending them three months at a time. And you know what three months at a time sounds like to me? It was three months, right? It sounds like a quarter of your income to me. Going to jobs projects, building infrastructure. And, yeah, that was temple work too. So, okay, pull your 10% out for the for the church, from that too, if you want, but I just want you all to see Solomon and think: you want to live under you want to live under the best king we, that, that's ever been. Okay, well, fine. You can I'll give you David. You want to live under the second best king and the one that was most successful in making a kingdom truly great, not just fighting to get its borders secure. It's Solomon. And it might look an awful lot like living in the United States. It might look an awful lot like that. He ruled. And he, sure, he benefited. Yeah, he got fabulously wealthy. But so did the rest of the people. Now, I'm defending Solomon doing the work of being king. And asking you, are are you even willing to live under a king like that? But more than that, I want you to remember, your work is good. The work that God has given you to do, you ought to do it to his glory. But here's here's the key. The moment that you stop putting God first, it doesn't matter how successful you've been. You'd think that what Solomon built up could surely not disappear as a phantasm in the night, right? To flip the light on and the ghost is gone. Have you guys, ever, have you kids ever experienced that? You're seeing a monster in the room? Turn the light on and it's gone? because it wasn't really there, right? It was your curtains. Just like that, it's gone. You'd think that what Solomon built up couldn't just be gone like that. That that success couldn't just disappear. And that's what we're, we are tempted to think when we get wealthy, when we get successful, when we get a good job, and we think, yeah, yeah. I've got it made. I got the house that I want. We have the house we want. We love it. Nevertheless, one fire and it's gone. Right? Or how many people were employed by Enron? I don't have any idea, but you know, all of a sudden, those jobs are gone. When we forget God, let us remember Solomon. Here we have a picture of the height of success, him doing the work he's supposed to do, and yet when Solomon begins to turn away from God, all the preparation, all the planning, all the work that he did, didn't matter. It disappeared. The next time, the, the next king, you basically don't get any impression that this stuff accomplished anything. So, what is your work? What is what you have been called to do? Maybe it is manual labor. Maybe it's typing with your fingers. Maybe it is thinking with your brain. Maybe it is changing diapers. All of these things give glory to God when we do them to his glory. And none of them are to be despised. They are holy work because they are performed by holy people. But the moment that you let your work distract you from God. And that's why it's key here. Solomon, while he's doing this, has not forgotten to continue the worship of God, to make it a priority. While we're reading this, (laughs) this part of his life. But are you letting your work distract you from God? And I don't care what your work is. If your work is a pastor, like me, it's possible for you to let your work distract you from God. It doesn't matter how good you know the work is. Solomon's work was a high calling, right? An important, powerful man. But if he ever turns away from worshiping God, we've got that hanging fire, that judgment, that warning. All the blessing that comes is wonderful, but it's no longer ours for the taking. It's no longer ours to count on if we forget God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work that you've given us to do. Often, Father, we allow it to distract us. Often we allow it to embitter us because of the amount of work there is. Father, in many ways, our relationship with work is corrupted by the fall. And therefore, we are tempted to have a bad attitude about work. We're tempted to have a bad attitude that this is required of us. Father, when we are given assignments at school, we kick against them and groan and complain. And even, Father, when we're given the gift of knowledge by doing that work, we want you to give us blessing without us having to work. We want you to give us blessing without us having to honor you with our time. Father, we do the same thing with the the wonderful blessing of children that you have given through marriage, and the fruitfulness of the marriage bed. And then, Father, we begin to whine about the work that it includes. Father, help us to be faithful to do the work, no matter how important it seems to the watching world like King Solomon's work or how unimportant it seems like being one of the servants in Solomon's kitchen. Let us do our work to your glory, never forgetting you, continuing to worship you day in and day out. Let our hearts be turned towards you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.